the children can be dismissed for Kids for Missions this morning. They're going to gather in the activity center, I believe, for the remainder of our time together here. We are jumping back into the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12, page 920, if you're using a pew Bible this morning. I'm grateful last week to be able to be gone, grateful to the elders for Brian and Dave helping out for Pastor Ron, stepping back into the pulpit and preaching last week. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be away. We were in Florida for a couple of days on our kids' spring break and and are back. It's been a week and I think my shoulders are almost back to the polar white color that they were before we left instead of the bright tomato red color that they were for so many days. But it was good to be away, and I'm grateful for that opportunity. We are back in in Acts chapter 12 today. We're working our way through the book of Acts, talking about the ways that God is working and transforming the early church, transforming the people of the early church. And Luke, as he's been been writing these chapters and has been leading us through uh, this book in Acts, uh, he's helped us to see the, the Jerusalem story. He's helped us to see the early church grow there in Jerusalem where, where Jesus first sent the disciples after he, after he ascended into heaven. And he left the disciples there and he said the, the gospel is going to be spread here in Jerusalem into the broader Judea and Samaria area and also to the edges of the earth, to the ends of the earth. And so Luke has helped us to see so far in this book how the gospel has been spread in Jerusalem. We spent lots of weeks looking at those first stories. And then he began to show us how it was spread into Judea and Samaria, how persecution came to the Jews in Jerusalem. And so then they began to scatter into the surrounding areas, taking with them the gospel and leading others there into the gospel. And so it spread just outside of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And we've even seen a couple of first steps into how the gospel is going to be spread to the edge of the world. We saw it with the Ethiopian eunuch as he was traveling home. We saw it uh, last week or two weeks ago now as we looked at at the city of Antioch, much farther north from Jerusalem, out of the, the reaches of that immediate area. And we saw how the gospel was being spread and the church of Antioch being there. And he's helped us to see, too, Luke has helped us to see in these beginning chapters how Christianity has has begun to move from strictly a Jewish thing into an all-who-believe thing. The gospel has now been spread to Gentiles, and we've looked at those stories in these last few chapters about that switch that began to happen here in, in Acts chapters 10 and 11. And now we come to chapter 12. Chapter 11 ended with the story of the church in Antioch. It gave us a, a, a picture of what was happening there. It even, it even set up what we're going to look at starting next week, some of the missionary journeys of, of Barnabas and Paul. It kind of set us up for that, seeing Barnabas go and seek out Saul and bring him to Antioch so that he might be the lead teacher there in Antioch. So it, it kind of set the window. It kind of set the, the picture up for us to see what's going to happen next week. But here... In chapter 12, we have a whole different passage. The camera, once again, as Luke directs this story, the camera moves from Antioch, 
Peter, or, sorry, Saul and Barnabas have come to Jerusalem. They brought the gift that the people had gathered together. They've come to Jerusalem, and now we have a picture back of what's happening in Jerusalem. Let's read chapter 12 together. Again, it's page 920 if you have a pew Bible there this morning. It'll also be on the screen if you'd like to follow along there. In Acts chapter 12, this is the picture that we begin to see as as. Saul and Barnabas have come back to Jerusalem. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood next to them and a light shone in the the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals, and he did. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, He said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country, (coughs) excuse me, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. The camera has shifted. 
We've moved from Antioch back down to Jerusalem. We've even moved away from Barnabas and Saul. And we've turned our eyes back on the apostles, back on Jesus' disciples, the leaders of the church, most of whom are still based in Jerusalem, based where they were left by Jesus. And the camera has now shifted and turned our attention back to them. And in this chapter, just here in Acts chapter 12, we have six deaths, it appears, and one rescue. Six deaths and one rescue. And it all starts with the name Herod. At the very beginning of chapter 12, it says that about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Again, Luke is so descriptive in the way that he leads us through this passage. We, we read that, we understand what Herod is doing here. I want to give you a little history lesson. I've tried to do this several times in the, in the book of Acts so that you can have a picture, a better understanding, hopefully, of, of how world history was or Jerusalem history at that time worked. We, we, under, we know the name Herod. We've seen it pop up several times as we've walked through the New Testament. We, we have a picture of that. But as we talk about Herod, we're talking about a, a, a family dynasty name. There's actually five different Herods here in these New Testament times. The first Herod, the granddaddy of them all, was Herod the Great. He ruled in Jerusalem. He ruled over that area he ruled over that area of Judea from 34 B.C. to 4 B.C. He was the Herod that was alive when Jesus was born. He was the Herod who, when the wise men came, following the star, asking about who this king of the Jews might be, he was the Herod who had all babies that were two years old or younger killed so that no one no one, no one would be able to come and to fight him for the name, for the reign of king of the Jews. He was Herod the Great. After, after he passed away, his son, Herod Archelaus, he began to reign from 4 B.C. all the way to 6 A.D. He was the son of Herod the Great, and he was not very well liked. In fact, the, the Jews... Of, of Jerusalem, they were so against Herod Archelaus that they began to complain to the emperor in Rome about him, complaining about his rule, complaining about his, his reign. And so the emperor finally had to step in. After just a few short years, the emperor stepped in and removed Herod Archelaus from power and instead put in Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was another son of Herod the Great, a brother to Herod Archelaus. He reigned for about 33 years or so, from 6 A.D. until 39 A.D. But the, the ruling was a little different during this time. Because Herod Archelaus was so disliked and had so, such dissension among the Jewish people, especially in that area, the emperor of Rome, instead of just having, having this, this king of the Jews or ruler of the Jews, this partly Jewish leader over the area, has now also sent tetrarchs, other Roman leaders, to come and to rule over that area as well. And so, 
we understand this because when we begin to picture the crucifixion of Jesus, we know that there's, there's two leaders that we see in that crucifixion story. We see Herod Antipas, this second son of Herod the Great, who is the leader of the Jewish people. But we also see that there's another Roman ruler, Pilate, who is in charge of the area. There's two leaders at this time. Herod Antipas is the one who is, is the Herod that kills John the Baptist and has John the Baptist beheaded during Jesus' time. He's the one who shows up, as I said, in that crucifixion story as Jesus is transferred back and forth between Pilate and Herod as, their, as, the, as the decision about who has jurisdiction over Jesus' arrest comes into play. It's Herod Antipas who we see there. Herod Antipas his reign ends 39 AD, and now Herod Agrippa I is the ruler. That's the Herod that we're looking at here. Herod Agrippa I is, is, uh, is a nephew of Herod Antipas. He's a grandson of Herod the Great, and, and he was well-liked among the Roman rulers. He grew up for much of his life, much of his early years. He grew up in Rome. He was a childhood friend of, of the emperor, who, Gaius, who was one of the Roman emperors, or Caligula is also his name. He's also a friend, a, a grade school friend of Claudius, another emperor in Rome. He has high-powered friends. And so that leads him to, to become the ruler then of this area of Jerusalem and the larger area of Judea and Samaria. In fact, Herod Agrippa now, because of his popularity with the emperors, because of his popularity back in Rome, he now has, has become the sole leader over that area. There's no more tetrarchs there. There now is just the king of the Jews who rules over the area. And his area, his, his, the actual land that he rules over is now once again just as great, just as large as when Herod the Great was the leader. Herod Agrippa I is a strong leader. And he's in charge in Jerusalem here in Acts chapter 12. There's also going to be another Herod Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, He's the son of Herod Agrippa I. Um, he also shows up in the New Testament. We'll see him farther down the road here in the book of Acts when, when Paul uh, actually gets to appear before the king, before Herod. Uh, he appears before Herod Agrippa II. So now that we've put those together, you've seen the name Herod show up several times through Scripture, through the New Testament. You have a better picture, I think, at least I do, a better picture of what's happening. Herod Agrippa I is the Herod Agrippa here in Acts chapter 12. He lays violent hands on some who belong to the church, and he lays his violent hands. He chooses James, the brother of John, and has him killed by the sword, has him beheaded. And our first death that we look at here in Acts chapter 12 we have to ask, why? Why does this happen? Why is James, the brother of John, why is James, the son of Zebedee, why is he killed? Why does Herod, why is Herod able to, to put him to death by the sword? This James is 
as I mentioned, one of the disciples, but he's not just one of the disciples. He's, he's one of the disciples that we, that we see several different times. We hear about him several different times. This is John's brother. John is, is the disciple who, who, who wrote the book of John, who wrote, wrote Revelation, has several letters in the New Testament. This John, his brother James, this is the James we're talking about. He's, he's one of the ones that gets nicknamed by Jesus. He, he gets the name along with John to, to be called the Sons of Thunder. This, this James is an important part of the Gospels. In fact, there's, there's a, a, a three disciples who are pulled out from the rest of them several times. Peter, James, and John. And as you look through the New Testament, you see that they're, they're kind of the big three. They're the special ones. They're Jesus' closest friends and allies. They get special treatment. They're named several times as Jesus is teaching. They're, they're brought in to the inner group a couple of times when Jesus is doing a healing. They're, they're brought to the top of the mountain when Jesus is transfigured. They're the ones that get to st- stand there and see James is one of those guys. They're there in the garden with Jesus just before Jesus is crucified. He, he, he leads all of his disciples to the garden and then he pulls Peter, James, and John in a little farther and says, pray for me. You're my guys. You're the three. You're the one I'm closest to. Pray for me. So this James, one of Jesus' closest friends, that's killed by Herod, beheaded by Herod. So why did James have to be beheaded? Certainly there could have been someone else as God was orchestrating things together, there could, have been, there could have been someone else that maybe was killed, someone else that Herod puts his violent hands on. There certainly could have been someone of lesser importance. In fact, in the list of disciples, there's another disciple named James. His name is referred to as James the Lesser rather than James the Major or James the Great. There's one James who is friends with Jesus, is, is in the inner three. This is the James that's beheaded by Herod Agrippa. There's another James, James the Less. Why not him? Why not him? The answer to that is spelled out in the story. The answer to that comes in verse three when it says, he killed, Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter Also, Herod does this. He lays violent hands on the believers. He takes James the Great, Jesus' friend, beheads him because Herod is doing this for his glory. Herod wants his name to ring out. He wants the Jewish people, the ones that are the the non-Christians, the unbelievers, the Jewish leaders of the temple and the church, the ones who are opposed to the Christian, he wants to be well-liked. He wants to be loved by them. And this does that. It pleases the Jews. And so Herod has him killed, and God, in his sovereignty, allows it. God allows James's death, not for Herod's glory, but for his own, for God's glory. I can't answer all the ins and outs of why God orchestrates it this way. 
But I do know this, God was not caught unaware. He was not sleeping. He did not look out and say, oh, that's James the Great, not James the Lesser. He was not caught unaware as to who it was. He didn't have his back turned. He didn't have his eyes closed. He also wasn't powerless to stop it. He also was not surprised by how far it went. He was not surprised when his head was taken off. Why is James killed? God, in his sovereignty, God, whose eye is always watching, whose hand is always working, God allowed it for his glory. In the grand tapestry of history, James's death reflects God's glory more than James's living. We know God could have stopped it. We know that there was lots of other options because chapter 12 tells us that there's other options. James has been beheaded. The Jews liked it. It made Herod popular. And so now there's another guy in the big three, Peter. He's also arrested. Herod was, was popular with the Jews, and so he tried to follow Jewish law as much as possible. And so this time in the calendar, these days that are happening here in Jerusalem correspond with Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which happens right after Passover. They're holy days, they're special days. And so there couldn't be a trial, there couldn't be an execution during those days. And so Herod arrests Peter, he, he intends to kill him, he intends probably to have him beheaded just like he did with James, but he's not able to do it because of the Jewish calendar that's at work in those days. And so, Herod, instead, unable to kill Peter, unable to even have the trial to finish him off at that point, puts him into the dungeon, throws the book at him, and treats him as if he is Jerusalem's most wanted. He has 16 guards that are in charge of watching over Peter, four at a time. There's one that's chained to his right side, one that's chained to his left side. There's two that watch over the gate, Four guards at all times. They have six hours where they are physically chained to Peter and watching over the gate. And six hours later, a new four come. And six hours later, a new four come. Sixteen guards that rotate over and over to watch this dangerous criminal, Peter. And the Bible tells us that Peter knows what has happened to James assumes that this will also probably be the result for him as well. He knows that the feast is just about over, that this next day is going to be the day of trial and execution, and the Bible tells us that Peter does not lay in his, in his jail cell that night, twiddling his thumbs, wondering what is about to happen, fretting about what is to come, but instead, Peter is asleep. 
sound asleep. You saw it on the screen this morning. There's a passage in 1 Peter chapter 1 where Peter himself says, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. The Peter that writes that, he shows it to us here in Acts chapter 12. Peter, about to be beheaded, locked between two guards behind several gates with other guards watching those gates. Doesn't fret. Doesn't lay awake, wondering what's about to happen. Doesn't try to concoct some kind of escape plan. Peter casts his anxieties upon the Lord, trusting in his care, trusting in his sovereignty, and falls asleep, deeply asleep. So asleep that when the angel shows up to rescue him from the jail cell, he has to strike him, he has to kick him, he has to wake him up. Peter, wake up. The light is shining there in the cell. Peter wakes up. And the angel walks us through, Luke Luke walks us through what the angel walks Peter through here in Acts chapter 12. The, 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 The chains come off of his hands. He gets dressed. He walks to the gate. The the guards at the gate don't see him. The the angel leads him right by the guards at the gate. He opens up the gates. The gates open, and he finally gets out. Do you see? See all the steps? Luke spells them out for us. He wants us to see. He wants us to see exactly what's happening. He wants us to see that what seemed like an impossibility... What seemed like there was no escape, what seemed like there was no hope, what seemed like there was no way out, there was no way out for James, he was just beheaded. Peter's fate is about to be the same. What seemed impossible to everyone was simple for God. What seemed impossible for everyone was simple for God. It seems like a pretty easy thing to remember, a simple truth that we should be able to cling to, and yet we don't do a very good job of it. We oftentimes, we oftentimes see everything as, not everything, we oftentimes see many things as impossible, that there's no hope, that there's no rescue, that there's no way out. And we forget that God makes impossible things simple. It was true here. That's the, the story. It's, it's entertaining as we read it. That's the story here. The church is praying. They're gathered together in this special prayer meeting because, because they, they want Peter to be rescued. They don't want the same fate for Peter that James had. And so, so they've gathered together and they're praying and, 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 they, and they want him to be freed But when he knocks on the door and Rhoda comes and Rhoda hears Peter's voice and runs back to the crowd and says, Peter's at the door. They say, you're crazy. That can't be true. It's impossible. There's no way. Guards chained on his right and left. Guards watching the gates. Several gates to get through. He's going to be killed. You've seen a ghost. You haven't really seen him. The church, they they were praying, they were hoping, they were believing that God could do it, and yet they did not believe that God had done it. Peter himself, Peter himself 
didn't believe it. He thought it was a vision himself. He, he, he couldn't understand that maybe the angel really was opening up these chains and opening up these gates. And finally, he becomes aware, God has rescued me. God has made the impossible simple. Herod believed it to be impossible. The church believed it to be impossible. Peter believed it to be impossible. But God makes it simple. So the question I think that we come to here is, why is James beheaded and Peter rescued? Why is James beheaded and Peter's rescued? It might be easy to say, you know, Peter's had a pretty large part in, in the book of Acts. We've, we've read a lot of stories about Peter. He's been the main preacher in these early parts in Jerusalem. He's traveled around. He's confirmed the Holy Spirit has, has gone to several other cities. Peter's been a pretty major part. But from here, from Acts chapter 12, from this story of Peter being in jail, we aren't going to hear much about Peter anymore. He's going to show up a couple times in the rest of that book of Acts. But, but the book of Acts turns. It changes. The story changes. Peter's part is fairly insignificant, at least in the recorded history of the book of Acts. So it doesn't seem like he had such a large part that he was so invaluable that he had to be rescued. We don't know. There's no answer here in the book of Acts in chapter 12 to tell us. Except we know this. God's eye is always watching. And his hand is always working. And in the grand tapestry of history, we know that Peter's living reflects God's glory in this moment more than Peter's dying. God was sovereign when James was beheaded. God is sovereign when Peter is rescued. I told you at the beginning that we're looking at six killings. We've seen one in James. Peter was a sure killing but was rescued. And then there's another passage here, just a, just a small picture that Luke gives us of what I think is probably four more killings. It says that Herod, there was no small uproar when Peter was gone in the morning. And so Herod begins to question the centuries, question the guards. Maybe it was only two, maybe it was all four, maybe it was all 16 men who were in charge of making sure that Peter stayed in jail. Whatever the case may be, he questioned them. Peter was obviously gone. He's wandered off. He's not even in Jerusalem anymore. He's headed off to a different city. Peter's gone. Herod questions the guards and puts them to death. That's what they expected. It's not uncommon for that to happen. Whatever, if a prisoner escapes, you receive his punishment. And so the guards, when they woke up in the morning and saw that Peter was gone, the chains were broken, the gate was open, they knew what was going to happen. But why? Why does God allow these two or four or 16 men, guards, to be put to death? They really didn't have much choice. They were asleep. They were blinded, really, by God and by the angel. They had no other options. 
These guards, we can assume, we don't know this for fact. Maybe, maybe as they were chained to Peter, they became believers and understood the gospel and Peter had led them to see their hope in Christ. Maybe that's the case, but we don't have any idea that that would be true in this story. Why? Was God surprised by this? Was he caught off guard at Herod's response? Did he not understand what punishment would result for these guards when he let Peter escape in this way? Why? I don't know the answer. Scripture certainly doesn't tell us, but I know that God's eye is always watching and that his hand is always working. And in the grand tapestry of history, these guards dying reflects God's glory more than their living. And I don't know how that works out. The last part of chapter 12, though, finally we, we read about a death or a killing that we seem to like we can understand, something maybe even we can appreciate. Herod, the same Herod who laid violent hands on the believers, who had James killed, who had Peter arrested, who killed the guards. This Herod now has moved out of Jerusalem. He's in Caesarea. The people of Tyre and Sidon are of another couple of people groups to the north. They've been in this battle of wills with Herod. They have finally decided that they're going to give in, that they're going to come to Herod, that they're going to to beg for his help. They're starving. They need some food. They rely upon Herod to bring it to them. And so they come hat in hand to Herod. And so Herod decides to respond to their plea for mercy And he sets up a special time so that he might come out and be gracious to them. This passage that we read here in Acts chapter 12, it's not just found in Acts chapter 12. It's actually found a couple of different places in history. the, The most profound part of it was written by Josephus. He also tells about this very day that we read about here in Acts chapter 12. Herod Agrippa comes out, he appoints a time in the amphitheater at Caesarea, this gigantic theater that's just on the sea. He appoints the exact moment for him to come out and to share his proclamation of graciousness to the people of Tyre and Sidon at sunrise when the sun would just be coming off the water, shining on his beautiful robes. He sets it up well so that he might look magnificent, so that he might look radiant, so that he might look godly. And he comes out, setting it up just that way. He comes out in his beautiful robes. Josephus explains it as if they might shine like the stars of heaven with the sun shining off of his robes. And he stands in the amphitheater, and all of the people are gathered there in Caesarea to hear what King Herod is going to share And so he delivers his oration to them. The people, whether they're completely honest or or just giving him false sense of, of greatness, they begin to proclaim this, this voice that we hear. This is not a voice of a man. This is the voice of a God. 
And as we secretly are hoping after reading these other passages of James and Peter, God hears that as well. Herod looked looked and acted and spoke as if he was a God. He attempts to steal the glory of the one who is most glorious. And so Luke tells us he was struck down, immediately struck down because he did not give God the glory and eaten by worms and breathed his last. Josephus, again the historian, as he tells the story, he tells it that he was, in fact, immediately, immediately struck, struck in the head, Josephus says, struck in the gut and falls to the ground. They haul him to a home just a little ways away. He suffers for about five days and then passes away. And they do some sort of autopsy on him. And in fact, he is being eaten by worms. I don't know the medical part of how all that happens, but every part of this is true. Struck down, eaten by worms, and passes away. It's easy for us to get behind this one because we can say, Herod, look at all this bad stuff he's doing. Look at his sin. Look at how he's attempting to steal this glory from God and make himself to look like a God and letting people cheer for him as if he is a God. We can get behind this killing. And yet, God's eye is always watching. His hand is always working. And in the grand tapestry of history, Herod's dying reflects God's glory more than Herod's living. And I think we can tie all that together in verse 24. We hear these stories, James is killed, Peter is rescued and runs off, Herod is struck down, and the worms eat him. And then Luke says in verse 24, but the word of God increased and was multiplied. God is sovereign over every death, every killing, every rescue, every head that's cut off, every chain that's broken and gate freed. God is sovereign. His eye is always watching. His hand is always working. And he is orchestrating all things together for his glory, for our good. Same God in Acts chapter 12 is the same God that we worship today. The one we point to today, the one we glorify today. His hand is always working, his eye is always watching. And we worship him this morning. The worship team is going to lead us. We're going to sing. We're going to declare God's glory today. I invite you to stand to join me as we worship together as they lead us. Shall I take from your hands your blessings yet not welcome any pain? Shall I thank you for days of sunshine 
yet grumble in days of rain. Shall I love you in times of plenty, then leave you in days of drought? Shall I trust when I reap a harvest? But when winter winds blow, then doubt. Oh, that your will be done in me. In your love I will abide. Oh, I long for nothing else as long as you are glorious. Are you good only when I prosper And true only when I'm filled Are you king only when I'm carefree and God only when I'm well. You are good when I'm poor and needy. You are true when I'm parched and dry. You still reign in the deepest valley. You're still God in the darkest nights. Oh, that your will be done in me. In your love I will abide. Oh, I long for nothing else as long as you are glorious. Quiet my restless heart Quiet my restless heart Quiet my restless heart In you So quiet my restless heart Quiet my restless heart Quiet my restless heart In you Oh, that your will In your love I will abide. Oh, I long for nothing else as long as you are glorified. Oh, 
that your glory might ring out. We know that your hand is always working, your eye is always watching, and so God, I pray that you might work in us so that we might see your glory at work, so that we might know your sovereign hand and your sovereign eye that work for your glory, for our good. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 11. Our benediction this morning, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.